these are the good things that will happen. If you choose to do this, these are the negative things or the, or, or the uh, consequences of those decisions. So the Lord's laying that out in chapter 26. He's just really going to focus on and build on it. And when we look at it for you and I, from where we're sitting and as we're going through the Scripture, we can see, knowing uh, what's going to take place ahead or what's ahead of the children of Israel, where they're going to falter, where they're going to stumble, where they're going to fail. For you and I, hopefully, it, it encourages us to say, hey, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 said, these things are laid out for us as an example that we would learn how to walk where we ought to walk. How to keep our focus where our focus needs to be. And as we look at chapter 26, it's interesting because I think there are some really deep insights for you and I to understand why the purpose of obedience. For the children of Israel during this time in their history, it's like talking to little kids. How much time have they spent with the Lord? I mean, they've, they've left the Egypt. 50 days to Mount Sinai, somewhere during that first period of time at Mount Sinai is where we're at right now. So they've seen the Lord do a lot of things, but they're real young in their development with Him. This is prior to the 40 years wandering in the desert. This is prior to the conquest into the, into the promised land. So the Lord is laying out, just like we do for our kids, if you do this, this is what is going to be accomplished through that. So hopefully it'll lay out some good concepts for us. Because as we grow in our understanding of God, our response to Him for the love that He gives us is obedience. That's what uh, John wrote in, in the epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He laid out for us that our response of love is to obey. To follow not for the if-thens, but simply because of what He's done for us, this is how we want to respond. This is how we desire to respond to him. So he begins chapter 26, verse 1. He says, Now you shall not make idols for yourselves, neither a carved image or a sacred pillar shall you rear up for yourselves, nor shall you set up an engraved stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. So he begins in this, just reiterating, guys, you need to stay focused on me. Here's the issue. God knows what they're going to do. How many times does he tell them over and over again, don't raise up any carved image to me. Don't, don't start following these, this false uh, worship or getting caught up in idols. Why does he say that? Because he knows what their future holds. He knows it's not going to be very long and that's what they're going to do. So he continues to reiterate, guys, stay focused on me. The, the number one God that they're going to turn to, the, the two uh, premium beings will be Baal and Ashtaroth, and, and primarily they'll turn to Baal. Baal will be the God they seek. Listen, God tells them, when you're following me, I'll give you the former and the latter rains. They live in a, in an arid climate. The only way for them to grow anything is from rain. That's it. One river flows through the Jordan, which is substantially smaller than than the snake it's a little river and one fresh body of water that's it see a galilee you got a, a the body of water of the dead sea but there, there's nothing good that that they're able to pull or, or draw that water at least at that time so they had to count on the lord but listen in canaan 
the god of the storm or rain was Baal. So the Lord would say, listen, when you guys start to get off track, one of the ways you're going to know that you're starting to stumble and go a different direction is, I'm going to withhold the rain. So what that would mean is, when you and I as his people saw the rain withheld, God says, now, when you see that, come to me, repent, seek me out, and then everything's going to be okay. So that was God's little warning device to keep him on track. What did they do? They said, it's not raining, so God's apparently not able to make it rain. They don't assume that there's something wrong with how they're living or what they're doing. So they turn to Baal and begin to make offerings to him. So because the Lord knows this is their future, over and over again, he emphasizes, don't make any graven image. Don't set up any sacred pillars. Don't fall into the trap that there's an answer out there somewhere beside me. And we've been studying Isaiah on Sunday nights. And this last Sunday night, one of the prophecies that Isaiah brings to the children of Israel is they found themselves in a place where they were in trouble and the first place they ran to was Egypt. God said, you run to Egypt's not a God. Egypt's not going to be able to deliver you. Egypt is going to fail and fall. Why didn't you come to me? Why didn't you come to me? See, setting up that graven image, setting up that that false god, it's not so much about having a carving or a picture as it is placing some something in that place of worship that or, or obeisance rather than God. That rather than going to God, we go to this thing, whatever it is. For them, it would be this stone. And Psalm uh, 35 would lay out for them what happens. What happens when we worship gods? Psalms tells us that when we worship a false god, we become like the god we serve. So then take a look at our lives. We look like Jesus? Do we look like the god we serve? If not, the problem's not the god we serve. Perhaps the problem is... We're not serving them like we think. Maybe there's something that we need to, to, to take counsel on, even as they did. The Lord lays this out. Don't let anything come between me and you. And then he goes on in verse 2. And you shall keep my Sabbaths. Now, because the word Sabbath is plural, this is talking about the appointed times. Okay, just so you know, there are 70 appointed times in the Bible. You got 52 Sabbaths, then you had the seven feasts, and some of those seven feasts were several days. Three of them were seven-day periods of time. So we, we lay out, or two of them were seven-day periods of time. So we lay out for it that these are the appointed times. The Lord says, this is what you're going to keep. Remember, we studied the appointed times. Why were they important? They're prophetic. What did the Passover point to? The sacrifice of Jesus Christ, who died when? On Passover. Who was placed in the ground when? During the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Who rose from the dead when? On the Feast of First Fruits. Then, whose spirit was poured out on what? The day of Pentecost. And there's three feasts remaining. The Feast of Trumpets. The, the Feast of Yom Kippur and the Feast of Tabernacles that that point to yet future events. And as we look at those, the Lord says, you need to keep my appointed times. 
I want you guys to just practice this story out over and over and over again. So they would practice those things out. Not even, not even really recognizing that they were, every time they celebrated these feasts, celebrating or looking forward to the, the sacrifice that God would give. And that in that, they would be practicing for their children and their children's children, these things that are going to point to Jesus Christ. So you will keep my Sabbath. So listen, here's the point. God wants us to obey, to follow him because of who God is. Who is God is laid out for us in the Sabbath. He's our rest. He's our Passover. He's the the spirit that Joel cried out in Joel chapter 2 that would be poured out when? In the last days, which is a time period we find ourselves in from the day of Pentecost to today. In these last days, I will pour out my spirit. And your manservants and your maidservants, they will prophesy. So we see these things. God was pictured for them in their holy days. Who he is. And so God says, I want you to, I want you to obey me because of who I am. And then he lays out, not only do I want you to be, uh, obey or follow my direction because of who I am, then he's going to talk about not only that, but where he dwells. Listen, you shall keep my Sabbath and reverence my sanctuary. Where was God's sanctuary, the children of Israel? Right in the middle of the camp. You had camps, you had part of, and as we get into numbers, we'll see it. You had part of the 12 tribes, north, south, east, west, around the tabernacle. When you take a careful look at the way they camped, if you were to stand above or fly over them, they would be in the form of a cross. And the exact center of the cross was the tabernacle, the presence of God. So listen, I, I want you to obey for because of who I am. I want you to obey me because of what, I, what I've done for you. And I want you to obey me because of where I dwell. Well, we have application for that. Where's God dwell today? Not in the temple or tabernacle made with hands, does he? 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says, we are the temple of God. He's within us. So the Lord says, follow my precepts because I'm with you. To the children of Israel, follow these things because here I am. I'm with you. I'm going to go wherever you go. I'm going to be wherever you go. There's no leaving God behind. He was there in their midst. Whatever they chose to do, wherever they, wherever they chose to be. So verse 3, he begins. Now, if you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and perform them, and I will give you rain in its season, and the land shall yield its produce, and the trees of the field will yield their fruit. So then the Lord calls them, finally, listen, I want you guys to follow me and obey me because of what I'm promising you. And here's what I'm promising you. I'm going to supply your every need. I'm going to give you the rain, the, the, the early rain and the latter rain. The, the early rain would have been March and April, latter rain, October to November. All of their harvest and planting was based on that. They would receive all of the precipitation in their country during those four months, during the, that period of time. Where they, actually Israel receives the exact same amount of rainfall as England. Where England gets it all the time, every day, 
They got it just those two seasons. The former and the latter. The Lord said, you'll know you're walking with me because the rain's going to be there. He's going to make incredible promises for his provision, for his protection, that he's going to be everything that they need him to be as long as they're walking with him. And that same opportunity is for us. The same opportunity to realize that God's going to meet our every need, that he's everything we need. But we just need to be willing to say, listen, I'm going to, I'm going to follow what God has laid out for me. I want to walk the path that God has laid out before me because of what God has promised me. And so he's going to give them the early and the latter rain. Now listen, when we're considering this concept, Amos chapter 3 verse 3 says, How can two walk together unless they're in agreement? So when we understand what God's calling us to, He's calling us, when He says, I want you to walk with me, that means we agree with God. How can two walk together unless they're in agreement? The Lord says, hey, we want to look at God's Word and say, you know what? You're right, Lord. And, and, and where I differ from God's Word, I'm wrong. Not the other way around. God's Word is right. God's Word is that direct the directing in our life so if i'm following him then me and he will agree will now doesn't mean i'm perfect it just means i agree with him that's what the lord's looking for from his people but his people would forget his people would look to other places and those are some of the same things we still do today we look to other places for our salvation rather than calling out on the lord we'll look at anything else right we'll look at at you know the legal system we'll look at uh, a doctor we'll look at all these things we we get horrible news on a checkup a doctor says oh you know we've got some terrible disease where do we fall down on wait hey i gotta find a specialist i gotta find a what's the lord say that's just the same as running to egypt i'm not saying don't go to a doctor where do you go first Go to the Lord. We want to go to the Lord. We want to seek the Lord in His direction, where He's guiding, how He's leading, what God desires from us. And so, here's the beginning of the promises. I will give you the rain. Verse 5, Your threshing shall last till the time of vintage, and the vintage shall last till the time of sowing. You will eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land safely. So first he promises them the land, then he promises them provision. He says, your harvest will last the whole time. You won't run short of food. You'll have everything you need up until the time of sowing, up until the next harvest, up until the next time of sowing. I'm going to take care of you. He promises them their provision. Everything you need. Give us this day our daily bread. What I need now. What I need. He doesn't include the heritage soft tail that I think I need with the big old ape hangers. But he does include my daily bread. I think it's the Proverbs that lays out for us that, that we are to desire. Um, I want to, can't, can't even think of exactly how it goes. I'll give you a Jackie paraphrase. But don't give me riches so I won't count on you. Don't make me poor so that I'll steal. But give me 
my daily bread. What I need right now. You know that it's in that, our needs where we are right now, that we more often than not see God, meet God, feel God. It's in that place. What did the children of Israel do? When they were doing good, what happened? They forgot them. When they were doing bad, they'd go to them. We need to learn to stay in that place where we're leaning on the Lord for everything we do. And it's hard for us in this country, folks. They no lie. If we need milk, we just go to the store. If we're hungry, we open the fridge. There's a whole lot of people on this planet that don't have that opportunity. We want to learn to live in the everyday, just in that total reliance on God. The next thing he promises them is safety. You're going to dwell in the land. I'm going to give you provision, but you're going to be safe. He told them, you follow me and you will be safe. Everything's going to be okay. You just stay with me. You stay right here beside me. And you will dwell in your land in safety. Listen, guys, the children of Israel were promised somewhere in the neighborhood of 300,000 miles. They uh, actually took 30,000. They took a tenth of what God had for them. When Joshua went in and the conquest in Canaan, everywhere you put the sole of your foot, I'll give you. But the Lord said, I'm not going to drive him out until you begin to step forward. Little by little, I'll give it to you. Little by little, you keep moving forward, I'll keep giving you the victory. And the children of Israel did that, but they only took a tenth of everything that God had. Listen, they had the possession of the land. But there was more than that. There was the ability to enjoy the land God gave them. You and I, we may be in possession of salvation. Are we enjoying everything that God has for us? Are we enjoying the fullness of the promise of God in our life? If not, we're in the same place that they were at. They possessed some, but the, but the enjoyment was lacking. They didn't enjoy the land to the fullness. They didn't enjoy the, this peace and the safety to the fullness. In fact, when we were studying 1 Corinthians, remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Lord said that with most of the children of Israel during the period of time as they were going into the conquest, God was not well pleased. And we talked about it, right? If you say that there were 2 million in the children of Israel, how many was he well pleased with? Well, we know for sure, two. Joshua and Caleb, who saw the promised land and said, we can take it. And everybody else said, no, we can't. And so the scripture tells us they wandered in the wilderness till that generation was gone. The unbelief was washed away. Same way that that affects our life. Are we experiencing everything that God has for us to experience? The Lord promised them the land. To you and I, God has made many substantial promises. Jesus, for one, said, I have come to give you life and life more abundant. Are we experiencing the abundant life? Not the abundance of things, but the abundant life. Are we experiencing joy, peace, long-suffering, goodness, gentleness, meekness, against such as there is no, there, there is no law? What's it, uh, Galatians chapter 5? The fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit. That's what should be coming out of our lives. That's what we should be experiencing in our lives. 
If not, and I'm sure we all struggle at various times in that same regard, if not, perhaps we have the possession, but we're not experiencing the fruitfulness of the land. We want to experience the fruitfulness. Then we need to be submitted to that outpouring of the Holy Spirit in our life to bring that fruitfulness to our lives. Submission to the Father. Acceptance of whatever God's got going on in our life in that trust that says, I know the thoughts that I think toward you. Thoughts of good and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. Jeremiah laid that out for the children of Israel. This is the heart of God in our lives. This is what we ought to be experiencing. Then he says, peace, verse 6. I will give peace in the land. And you shall lie down and none will make you afraid. You trust in me and there's no reason for you ever to be afraid. He didn't say times would never get hard or there'd never be a struggle. He said you'll never have to be afraid. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. If you fear God, there is no reason to fear anybody else. We bow our knees to our Lord and Savior, and we don't have to bow our knees to anyone else. He is the one who brings that peace and safety. And this is what he's saying. I will rid the land of evil beasts, and the sword will not go through your land. Listen, guys, this is God's holy promise to the nation of Israel. Now, the sad thing is, as I'm reading this, this is what their life could have been. But it's not what it was. And I think the same is true for us. There is what our life could be empowered by the Spirit and walking with the Lord. And there is what our life is. And it's important that we understand there's a discrepancy between the two. And that we realize that God gives us direction on what to do about that. And how to experience more, uh, more of it all. In, uh, in verse 7, he says, You will chase your enemies, and they will fly about, fall by the sword before you. Five of you will chase a hundred. A hundred of you will put ten thousand to flight. Your enemies will fall by the sword before you. And I'm reminded, every time I read that, I'm reminded of Gideon. You remember Gideon and the judges when the Midianites were stealing all their crops and So Gideon's threshing his grain down in a pit. And as he's threshing the grain, the angel comes to him and calls him a mighty man of valor, right? Oh, Gideon, mighty man of valor, as he's hiding down there in the pit. He says, sound the trumpet and call together the armies, and I will deliver the Midianites into your hand. The Midianites were somewhere in the area of 130,000 strong, their army. Gideon sounds the trumpet, and 30,000 come. Now, that's not great odds. But Gideon's thinking, okay, well, you know, the Lord's with us. You remember what the Lord said, right? Gideon, you got too many. There's too many because if you win now, you're going to think you did it because you're so good. So tell everyone who's afraid to go home. There went two-thirds of the army. Just like that. 10,000 against 130,000. Oh, Lord, the odds just got worse. But at least God's with us. What did God tell him? Uh, still got too many. Too many. 
So I want you to go over here to this brook and I want you to, to divide the men based on how they drink. I want you to take the ones who get on all fours and lap like a dog. You put them on one side. The others who drop down on one knee and bring the water up to their mouths, you put them on the other side. Now, I've heard Gail Irwin teach on this a hundred times, and I have to say I agree with Gail Irwin based on what the Scripture laid out. A lot of people say that the reason that the, the Lord, I think God took whichever side was going to be smaller, for one thing. However, <clears throat> the, the one, many commentators say, well, the, the guys who got down on one knee, they're your better soldiers, are alert, looking around. I don't know, Gail Irwin says, the guys that got down on one knee got down on one knee because they're too fat to get down like the other guys, and they had to bring the water up to themselves. And that God chose them. Why? Because the glory would go to Him and not to these mighty 300. It was the 300 frumpy guys like me going into battle thinking, oh Lord, man, we in trouble. <laughs> Did I tell you guys I played softball the other night? Oh, we, we started... Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. We started playing softball, men's softball team playing softball. And, and I used to play a long time ago, at, and I, so I played. And this is the if-then of softball. If you play, you will be sore. Wow. And I don't remember, when I was younger, I'd take off running to first base. It seemed like I got there faster. They could time, time me with a sundial now. The base coaches kept saying, get the refrigerator off your back. But it's with me. It's not going anywhere. Nonetheless, you know, it was guys like that. And, and then, don't forget God's battle plan. Oh, swords? Well, they're optional. What I really want you to bring is a torch. Put it underneath a, a, a vase and a trumpet. And you sound the trumpet and break the vase and let the light come forth. That's how they defeated 130,000. Not because they had some great battle plan. They went in with swords blazing. But they trusted in the Lord and God delivered. So five will put the enemies to flight. A hundred will, will rush off 10,000. In verse 9 he says, For I will look on you favorably, and I will make you fruitful and multiply you and confirm my covenant with you. The next promise, he says, you're going to have a population explosion. You're going to be fruitful. You're going to have kids. The kids are going to have kids, big, happy families. Everything's going to be coming together because you're, you're following me. You're focused on me. You shall eat the old harvest and clear out the old because of the new. So you're going to have plenty. You're not going to be out of food and thinking, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? You're going to have plenty. You're going to want to put out the old to make room for the new. I'm going to supply your needs to that, to that extent. And I will set my tabernacle among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. The next great blessing that he promises them, my presence. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be in your midst. You remember when Moses was given the opportunity to start all over in the book of Exodus, around the golden calf? The Lord says, we'll just start over, Moses. I'll start with you. Forget them people. And then Moses said, no, Moses kept giving the people back to God. They're not my people. They're your people. God said, no, they're not my people. They're your people. Back and forth. But God finally took them back, and God told the people, okay, you can go to the promised land, but I'm not going with you. And the people said, if you don't come, 
we don't want to go. And that was a great thing to say. They fall short on keeping it, but so would we. But that's a great attitude to have. I don't want to go if God's not there. I want to be there. Why do I want to go somewhere that God wouldn't want to be? Why would I want to put myself in a position that, that's going to be outside a, of His presence? So the greatest blessing that they had in verse 12, I will walk among you. He says, I will walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be their slaves. I have broken the bands of your yoke and made you to walk upright. Nine times in the book of Leviticus, God reminds the children of Israel, I'm the one who set you free. I set you free. I came and brought you out of bondage. And I have a plan for you. Why does he remind them over and over again? Because they forget. Over and over again, they forget that God, what God has done for them. How many times do we face something that in the past the Lord's brought us through something similar, but then we face a new storm and we get all worried that, that God's not going to be there for us. And then God says, no, I'm the one who brought you out of Egypt. I'm still with you. I'm still here. I'm still going to fulfill my promises to you. I'm still going to do what I said I was going to do. That's the, if you do this, blessings. Those are the blessings that God promises of people who walk after him. Most of their history, they didn't live in that part of chapter 26. Most of their history, they live in this part. Verse 14. But if you do not obey me and do not observe all these commandments, and if you despise my statutes, or if your soul abhors my judgments, so that you do not perform all my commandments, but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. If you, then I. Here's the blessing. Now here's the curse. And the cursings is going to lay out five judgments. And those five judgments will happen in the land. Six judgments in total. The first five occur in the land. The sixth one, the land vomits them out. Remember, God warned them. If you do the same things that the people did before you, the land will vomit you out. And ultimately, that's what we see happening. It occurs... Um, It occurs for the, the northern kingdom prior to the southern kingdom, but each kingdom of Israel ultimately gets cast out. From the time they get cast out, uh, the last one being about 586 B.C. Uh, for the southern kingdom, they never again really rule themselves to any extent. 70 A.D., they cease to be a nation. The next time they start to rule themselves again... May 14, 1948. All that time, God said, if you do this, this is what's going to happen. Well, he, he's going to lay out those judgments. The first one, <clears throat> I will even appoint terror over you. That word terror in the, in the Hebrew is literally confusion. You're going to be confused. I don't know where to go. I don't know what to do. How many times do we see that happening? When we first know that we're in trouble, we're, we're kind of not really... 
walking or relying as much as we ought to on the power of God is when we're faced with a decision and we don't know what to do. So the very first thing that should tell us is, man, I need to get right with the Lord. I need to seek God. Lord, I have this issue. I have this problem in my life. Lord, help. Right? That's what, that's where, so on that very first issue, man, we could turn right to the Lord and, and lay it out before Him. But then He goes on and says, now I'll send the terror, that confusion, and the wasting disease and fever, which will consume the eyes and cause sorrow of heart. So then, first, confusion, then consumption. Literally, it's a description of tuberculosis, which ends up being uh, one of the diseases that, that ravages that entire area. But the idea for you and I, I think I like the concept of, of wasting. Everything is wasted. What is it that Solomon said when he wrote Ecclesiastes? Here he had everything, right? He had so much money, they stopped counting it. He had so many women, he shouldn't have been counting them either. He had all these things that life was just every, you know, all the fame and fortune anybody could ever say would ever lead to happiness. But what did he say? Vanity of vanity, all is vanity. It's all empty. It's all a waste. I send the wasting disease. Nothing adds up anymore. Nothing makes sense. That's what the Lord says. Hey, listen, it'll consume the eyes and cause sorrow of heart. Is there a better way to describe depression in our country today than, than the inability to see anything good and sorrow of heart? Your eyes are blinded. Isaiah said your eyes will be blinded because you choose blindness. You choose not to see. So you won't see anything. And that heart, that heart that says sorrow of heart, man, I'm, I'm, nothing makes me happy. Folks, we live in the richest country in the world and we are the height of drug prescription for depression. Well, that shouldn't be, should it? I mean, there are people that literally have no idea that what they're going to eat. When uh, last time I, I visited with Marilee and Pastor Gerald when they got back from Malawi at the at the um, orphanage there at uh, uh, Michaela Michaela's uh, what is it? Future and a Hope. And um, when they went, they they shared with me what they eat. Ninety percent of their meals are made up of this porridge. This porridge that they eat that has zero nutritional value. But it makes your belly full. It's this, it's like eating sawdust. And that's the majority of, of what they eat. And when they get any real food, they are dipping it in that. And, and, and using it as a sop to sop it all up. And here, I got a freezer filled to the brim. Now, I'm not saying that that's wrong or that's bad. But to, to have as much as we have as a nation and to be doing as little as we're doing as a nation for the rest of the world and helping out with, uh, with hunger and, and all that stuff, God's going to hold this nation accountable for that. Don't think it's not. Don't think that God's not up there listening when the government says, hey, don't plant, don't grow crops. We'll pay you not to. So that, why? If we grew that, couldn't we feed people who have no food? Who cares they pay us? God said, if you, if you make serving me, you make me your priority, I'll make everything else fit at the end. Didn't he say that? 
Didn't he say, you follow me, follow my precepts? Doesn't God say I'm the defender of the orphan? Doesn't God say I'm the one who cares for, for the hungry? And, and when he judged Sodom and Gomorrah, you know it wasn't homosexuality, right? It was pride, fullness of food, and they cared not for the needy. That's why God judged them. So as he's laying this stuff out, hey, he's saying, you're, you're, you're going to have this wasting disease. And to me, that's a picture of our nation, and it's not going to get better. It's just going to continue a downward spiral, man. History shows us something. Men who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. The cycle we're on has been repeated before. And it'll be repeated again as, uh, as the Lord continues to pour out this judgment. Now listen, he says then, the next part of verse 16, you will sow your seed in vain, for your enemies will eat it. The whole book of Judges, the Moabites, every time they had harvest, what happened? The Philistines and the Moabites would come in and take all the harvest. God said, you're going to sow and your enemies are going to take it. These are all warning signs that you're off track. You're not walking with me. We're not in agreement together. Call upon my name. Seek my face. He says in verse 17, I will set my face against you and you will be defeated by your enemies. Those who hate you will reign over you and you shall flee when no one pursues you. Proverbs 28.1 says the righteous will set men to flee, but the wicked will flee before no one. They're just going to run away even though no one's pursuing them. The scripture lays out for us that this is going to be a mark of what the people will do when they don't allow or give God that rightful place in their life. These are the cursings that will befall. Verse 18, and after all this, If you do not obey me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sin. Do you know that the scriptures are built on what we call a heptatic structure? Heptatic is a fancy way of saying sevens. We read the book of Revelation and we look at the tribulation period. It has three sets of judgments in essence, three sets of seven, right? Seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. And at the end of each one, what is declared? Still, man would not repent. And so, seven more come. In Leviticus, in chapter 26, he says, Listen, if you will not repent and obey me, then seven more. Seven more. Seven more. We see that fulfillment in the book of Revelation. He says in verse 19, I will break the pride of your power. I will make the heavens like iron and the earth like bronze. And your strength will be spent in vain, for your land will not yield its produce, nor shall the trees of the land yield their fruit. He's going to make the heavens, he's going to make the heavens like iron. That means no rain. No rain and the earth like bronze, hard as a rock. Can't get nothing in it. Nothing to grow. That's what he's saying. Nothing's going to grow. You're going to enter into drought. And the drought's going to bring famine. There'll be a shortage of food. And so, this again, he's saying, 
If you're not following me, here's the progression. When you look at the history of the nation of Israel, doesn't it look like this? And yet, I go to Israel today and you talk to folks and they say, man, don't tell me we're God's chosen people. Look at all the horrible things that have happened in our history. Man, sit down and read Leviticus 26 and read what could have been instead of what isn't. Where things could have been. What could have happened in our life. And the great thing about God and the could-haves is the could-haves can happen anytime. All we have to do is stop, repent, change our direction, and go toward the Lord. And He's right there. Right there. Ready to, ready to forgive. Ready to open. Verse 21, If you walk contrary to me, by the way, that word contrary means to turn toward to fight. So the Lord's saying, listen, as all these judgments take place in your life, if you get angry at me and you turn like you're going to fight me, like I'm the one that's wrong, that I'm the one that somehow has done something wrong, then the Lord says, I'll be contrary to you. If you walk contrary to me and are not willing to obey me, I will bring on you seven times more plagues according to your sins. There's that seven, that heptatic structure again. I will also send wild beasts among you which will rob you of your children, destroy your livestock, and make you few in number, and your highways will be desolate. I will bring the wild beasts. That should remind you of something. It should remind you of Revelation chapter 6, verse 8. One of the judgments of the seven seals is that the Lord will turn loose the wild beasts. That word for wild beast means wild beasts of any size. Sometimes when we talk about wild beasts, we only think of the ones that are really big that we can see. And we forget about the ones that are so small, we can breathe them. And they get into our bodies and ravage them. Right? And we'll cut loose upon you the wild beast. Now, the blessing was you'll be fruitful and multiply. The curse is your, your young ones are going to die. They're going to perish. The wild beasts are going to be cut loose because you, you want to turn toward me. You want to fight me. Hey, let me tell you guys, it's not that much different from being a parent. I remember when I was a kid, I remember the first time my mama went to whoop me and, and I kind of was getting big enough to where I could control whether or not mama whooped me, and I thought I should. What did that mean? A daddy's whooping me. Right? How are you going to turn against your mama like that? How can you? That's your mother. You can't do that. Now you got dad. The point is, when we do wrong, we should accept the consequences of our choice. That was the purpose of my father disciplining me to teach me to accept the consequences of my choice and say it's not dad's fault i made the choice it's not mom's fault i made the choice but god says if you're going to blame me things aren't going to get better i'm not the one who chose this path for you you chose this path so this is what the Lord is laying out for them. Hey, this is the path you chose. This is your direction. And then he says in verse 23, 
And if by these things you are not reformed, so now you don't repent, you don't turn toward me, but walk contrary to me. Again, what did that contrary mean? To turn toward the fight. You're blaming God. You're mad at God. Then I will walk contrary to you. And I will punish you seven times more for your sins. Seven seals. Seven trumpets. Seven bowls. Again, in Leviticus, he's laying them out again. Only in Leviticus, he he lays that out for him four different times. Four different times. Now, he goes on in verse 25. And I will bring a sword against you that will execute the vengeance of the covenant. So the first thing he's going to bring is a sword. What is that? War. When you are gathered together within your cities, I will send the pestilence. War and pestilence. And you will be delivered into the hand of your enemy. And when I have cut off the supply of bread, ten women will break bread in one oven. And they will bring back your bread by weight. And you shall eat and not be satisfied. He's laying out for him. What's happened? War, pestilence, famine. Remember the four horsemen of the apocalypse? War, pestilence, famine. What was the last horse? Death. So we see the exact same thing laid out for them here. Folks, you need to understand, if we want to take the whole uh, counsel of God's Word, and you want to look at the 70th week of Daniel, the tribulation period, what does it fall in suit with? It falls directly in suit with what God said He would do to the nation of Israel to cause them to repent. What happens during the tribulation period? At the end of the tribulation What do we see? The nation of Israel accepting the Messiah, the Mashiach, the remnant. Folks, Ezekiel chapter 5 tells us all about it. Ezekiel chapter 5 verse 12 lays out for us that that a third of Israel will die in pestilence, a third of Israel will die in famine, and a third will be scattered. And God says he will call those who are scattered back to him. Which seems to indicate and follow suit with what the book of Revelation lays out in the judgments that are faced that two-thirds of the nation of Israel are going to be wiped out. But what's left is real. And all of Israel, Paul says, all of Israel, that point, they'll be saved. Israel, the real, what's Israel mean? Governed by God. Does it say all of Jacob will be saved? What's Jacob mean? Supplanter, deceiver, liar. The nation of Israel has two natures, don't they? The liar and the one governed by God. How many natures do we have? Two. What's one? Flesh and a spirit. And the Lord said they both war against each other according to who's going to rule. Which one do we want ruling in our life? The spirit. The Spirit. So the Lord, as we're looking at Leviticus, He's painting this picture, ultimately, of the effect He's going to have on His people, the nation of Israel. And we need to to keep that in mind. Does it have application to us? Surely, I believe it does. If we obey God, I think we receive those blessings. Not easy life, but we have the blessing of knowing that God's with us, watching over and keeping us. And if we disobey, you don't just get one without the other. If you've ever heard of replacement theology, replacement theology loves to do this. They come to Leviticus 26 and they say, all the blessings are now for the church. What about the curse? 
That's for Israel. What? Why do you get to do that? You don't get to divide one from the other. It's if-then chapter. If you do this, this is what happens. If not, that's what happens. You don't get to remove one out. Replacement theology, I believe, is it's serious error. And we'll see, God is not finished with the nation of Israel. And that gives me hope. Because that means I won't mess up so much that God will be finished with me. But that he will constantly be reaching out his hand and opportunity to repent. As long as we're willing, he's there giving us that opportunity. Well, let's see what he says. He goes on. Uh, and he says, and after all this, if you do not obey me, but walk contrary to me, again, you're blaming God. Blaming God for the things that are going on in your life. And I will walk contrary to you in fury. And I, even I, will chastise you seven times for your sins. Every time they, they blame God and don't accept responsibility for where they are, God says, I'll pour out seven more. I'll pour out seven more. Verse 29, you will eat the flesh of your sons, and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters. At what point do you want to stop? At what point do you want to say, you know, this rebellion I'm on is not taking me to a good place. I don't know about you, I, I think I'm there now. I don't, I don't want to get anywhere close to this. Where, where you're eating the flesh of your sons and of your daughters. Turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 6. Second Kings chapter six, we'll look at about verse twenty-five. And there was a great famine in Samaria, and indeed they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for eight shekels of silver, and one fourth of a cab of dove, dove droppings for five shekels of silver. So they're they're selling dove poop for oil to burn in their candles and eating the head of a donkey. Somewhere that might be a, a, a delicacy. But the last time I checked, a donkey's head was hard and there wasn't a lot of meat on it. <clears throat> this is the northern kingdom. They're being besieged by Syria. Then the king of Israel was passing by on the wall and a woman cried out to him saying, Help me, my lord, O king. And he said, if the Lord does not help you, where can I find help for you? From the threshing floor, from the wine press? We're in a siege. What can I do for you? That's what he's saying. And the king said to her, what's troubling you? And she answered, this woman said to me, give me your son that we may eat him today and we'll eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. And I said to her on the next day, give me your son that we may eat him. But she has hidden her son from me. Now it happened, when the king heard the words of the woman, he tore his clothes. And as he passed by on the wall, the people looked, and underneath he had sackcloth on his body. And he said, God do so to me and more also, if the head of Elisha, the son of Sophat, remains on him today. Who's the king blaming? Prophet of God. And in the end around, he's blaming God. God's prophet said this siege would take place. I'm blaming God for it. God said, if you're disobedient to me, if you don't follow me, 
You're going to eat your own children. And they did. And that's not the only siege they did it in. 70 AD, it happened again. Do you realize the choices that we make don't just affect us? I don't just take myself down when I sin. I don't just take myself down at the choices I make, the the things I think are little deals, not a big deal. You know what's a big deal about this or that? I take my kids down with me. And I may survive. And they may not. I remember a story. I'll never forget a story a pastor told. I, I don't remember who it was. But he said that his, him and his boys were out and they found a stray dog. And the kids just fall in love with this stray dog. So they brought that stray dog and made him a part of the family. And in a week or two, they started seeing posters up. And the guy knew, this is a, this is a dog. But he, he didn't want to give the dog back. And his, his wife had called and told the guy, I think we have your dog, but he didn't want the guy to take the dog back. And so he bought some hair coloring and he changed the color of the dog. And he said, my family kept the dog and I lost my kids. Lost them all. For a dog? We think it's just a little thing, right? If you don't follow me, you're going to eat your children. You're going you're gonna to fall apart. It's, gonna, it's all going to go up in smoke. He goes on and tells them then, I will destroy your high places, cut down your incense altars, cast your carcasses on the lifeless forms of your idols. When the Bible talks about high places, it was high places of idolatry. They would go to the top of a mountain. You've heard of the Acropolis, right, in, in, in Greece. Every city had an Acropolis. That's where they put their temples. That's where they did their worship so they could go up to the place where they would worship. The Lord says, I'm going to knock down your high places. I'm going to throw your lifeless bodies on top of the, the idols that you're trusting in that can't help you. These ones that you placed your hope in. Uh, And my soul will abhor you. I will lay your cities waste and bring your sanctuaries to desolation. And I will not smell the fragrance of your sweet aromas. What's that mean? Don't start offering offerings to me now. The children of Israel thinking, oh, now we've done it. We made God mad. We better get back to doing the sacrifices. What does the scripture say? To obey is better than sacrifice. Children of Israel believed everything that they had was wrapped up in circumcision. And what did God tell them over and over again? Circumcise the foreskin of your hearts. Circumcision is an outward sign of an inward change. That reminds you of something else? Baptism is a what? Outward sign of an inward change. Baptism save you? No. Did circumcision save them? No. What saved them? The circumcision of their heart. What saves us? Putting our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It's the same thing. They put their trust in these things and think it's all going to be okay. I will bring the land to desolation. Here's the final one. I will bring your land to desolation. Your enemies who dwell in it will be astonished at you. 722 B.C., the northern kingdom fell to the Assyrians. 605 B.C., 
to 586 B.C., the southern kingdom fell to Babylon. I will scatter you among the nations and draw out a sword after you. Your land will be desolate and your cities waste. And the land will enjoy its Sabbath as long as it lies desolate and you are in your enemy's land. When they're in Babylon, one person figures out why they're there. His name? Daniel. Daniel figures out why they're there. Why? Because God said, every seven years you give the land its Sabbath. For a year, don't work it. I'll give you enough in the sixth year to carry you through. You give the land a break. You take a break. You rest in me. Trust in me. Every seven years they were supposed to do it. How many times did they do it? Never. 490 years, they never kept the Sabbath year. How many years does that add up to? 70. How long was the captivity in Babylon? 70 years. The land will have its Sabbath. And that's what's accomplished here. And the land shall rest. As long as it lies desolate, it shall rest. From the time it did not rest on your Sabbath until you dwelt in it. And as for those who are left, I will send faintness into their hearts, into the hands of the enemies. And the sound of a shaken leaf will cause them to flee. They will flee as though fleeing from the sword, and they will fall when no one pursues them. They will stumble over one another, as it were before the sword, when no one pursues, and you shall have no power to stand before your enemies. Guys, from 605... Uh, or 586, doesn't really matter which one, till 1948. They never rule themselves again. Small, brief period of time during the Maccabean Revolt that they enjoy a little bit of freedom that's quickly squashed. But that's it. From the time they go into captivity until the time they are ceased to be as a nation in 70 AD, never again do they enjoy. Did they have the possession of the land? Yeah, did they enjoy it? Because they forgot about God. I bet they even said it was unconstitutional to pray. (laughs) I don't know. I wouldn't be surprised. Scripture goes on to tell us then, You will perish among the nations, and the land of your enemies will eat you up. From 70 AD to 1948, did the Jews ever find a home? Did any country ever accept them? They found persecution wherever they went. Nobody liked them. They died among the nations, among the lands of their enemies. And those of you who are left shall waste away in the iniquity of your enemies' lands. Also in their father's iniquities which are with them, they'll waste away. That's the cursing. Now that next word in verse 40 is important. But... If they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers with their unfaithfulness in which they were unfaithful to me and that they have walked contrary to me or blamed me and that I have also walked contrary to them and have brought them into the land of their enemies if their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they accept their guilt and I will remember. If they repent, I will remember. If my people, called by my name, 
will humble themselves and pray. And I will hear their cries from heaven. And I'll heal their land. Isn't that what the Lord's saying for them here? Then I will remember my covenant with who? Jacob. I love it that God is not ashamed to be called the God of Jacob. That means he's not ashamed to be called my God. Because I'm a lot like Jacob. I'm a whole lot more like Jacob than I am like Israel. Then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and Isaac and Abraham. I will remember. I will remember the land. The land also shall be left empty by them and will enjoy its Sabbath while it lies desolate without them. And they will accept their guilt because they despise my judgments and because their soul abhorred my statutes. What does that mean? The people were mad at God for the choices they made and the consequences that befell them. Aren't kids just like that? My son will be mad at me because I discipline him. What about uh, thinking that you shouldn't have done what you did? See, that's what repentance is. A change of direction. Any discipline that does not produce repentance is wasted. And God says... That the fool's back is, though you beat him with stripes, he does not learn. It's all your fault. It's all someone else's fault. No repentance. Without repentance, the people couldn't turn and enjoy, once again, the things that God was offering unto them. They will accept their guilt because they despise my judgments, because their soul abhorred my statutes. Yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, listen to this, it's very important. For all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not cast them away. Is God done with the nation of Israel? I will not cast them away. When they're in the land of their enemies, I will not cast them away. He's not done with them. Nor will I abhor them to utterly destroy them and break my covenant. God's covenant that he made with Abraham is what is known as an unconditional covenant. What does that mean? Cannot be broken. Why does that help us? Well, it's called eternal security. Ever heard of it? If your salvation depends on you, we're all in trouble. If your salvation depends on him, now we're doing pretty good. Here's what he's laying out for the nation of Israel. I will not cast them away, but for their sake I will remember the covenant of their ancestors whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations that I might be their God. I am the Lord. So though they're scattered to the nations, though they're dying in the land of their enemies, God said, yet I will remember them. I have a plan. The prophetic clock again begins to wind as we draw near to the 70th week of Daniel. What's the purpose of the 70th week of Daniel? That all Israel would be saved. That's the purpose. Not to purify the church. To 
purify Israel. Their eyes would be open and turn toward Him again. That's why Daniel gave the prophecy in Daniel chapter 9. Who were Daniel's people? Nation of Israel, right? Church didn't even exist yet. Prophetically, he's looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. These are 70 weeks determined for who? Your people, God said. Daniel's people? Yeah. That's the emphasis. What's the emphasis in Leviticus chapter 26? Nation of Israel. Does that mean it has no reference to us? No, that's not what I'm saying at all. But keep in mind, when we look at the whole counsel of God's word, we can't just arbitrarily start putting the church places that it doesn't belong. We put the church places where it does belong. Where the scripture talks about. We follow the pattern of prophecy and we see where the church fits. But don't try to force it in a place that scripture doesn't back. The scripture doesn't indicate. Scripture doesn't lay out. Now, as we take a look here in verse 46, these are the statutes and judgments and laws with the Lord made between himself and the children of Israel on Mount Sinai by the hand of Moses. I'm not going to go, fortunately for everyone, I'm going to say praise the Lord and try to finish uh, chapter 27 in four minutes. (laughs) I'm not anywhere near that good. But I want to share kind of an interesting little mathematical prophecy. may mean nothing, but uh, it certainly is interesting to consider. There's a prophecy in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 4, verses 1 to 8. You can check it out uh, anytime you want. The 70 years are clearly accounted for in the Babylonian captivity. But Ezekiel prophesies about 430 years. So it lays out... 360 years that aren't accounted for. What what happened to these 360 years? Well, when we consider this scripture in Leviticus, what happens when the people don't repent? Seven times, right? Seven times. Multiply. Seven times. So if we take those 360 years and multiply it by seven, seven times, if, if... That applies from Leviticus 26. We come up with 2,520 years. Now we need to bring that down into a biblical year. Biblical years are 360 day years. That's the Jewish calendar or lunar calendar, 360 day years. So we bring that down and the, it, it ends up uh, 2,483 years. Nine months, 21 days. So that's the total amount if we... Multiply what Ezekiel said by seven. The interesting thing, if we look at that, if we put all that together, if you count from 606 B.C., that's the first time Babylon initially took the first group of captives. That's when Daniel went to Babylon. And you add that 2,483 years, nine months, and 21 days to the day when that occurred, you come up with, May 14th, 1948. That's when Israel became a nation again. But if you don't want to count from 606, say you want to go from 587 B.C., that's when Babylon destroyed the temple and 
got done trying to set up puppet governments in Jerusalem. If you count from then, the 2,483 years, 9 months, 21 days, you come up with June 7, 1967. In case you don't know what that date is, Six-Day War. What happened at that conclusion of the Six-Day War? On that date... Israel regained Jerusalem as her capital. Might mean nothing. I don't know. Kind of amazing though, isn't it? That of all the possible dates it could land on, we're landing on May 14, 1948 and uh, June 7, 1967. Those two pretty important days in Israel's history. The Lord said... I'll remember you. And I'll bring you back to the land. And I'll bring you back to me. That's the work that God's doing for Israel. The work he's doing for you and I, we're what he uses. You realize that, right? Think about Naomi and Ruth. Ruth's a Gentile, right? Moabite. Naomi, she's a... Jew, Israelite. Well, Ruth is introduced to God through Naomi. Christianity is birthed through Judaism by receiving the Messiah through the Jew. The first converts were Jews, right? Then Ruth, she's gleaning in the field and She's introduced to her savior, right? Boaz means strength. Boaz is going to redeem Ruth, right? Boaz becomes a picture for you and I of Jesus Christ. Ruth would be the church, a Gentile bride, the bride of Christ, right? The bride of Christ. How is it that Naomi comes to faith again? By watching The blessing of God upon Ruth. Pattern is prophecy. We see the pattern in the scripture over and over and over again. Pattern is prophecy. That's the work that God's doing. The body of Christ is going to lead the nation of Israel back to him through jealousy. They're going to see the relationship. They're going to see the deliverance. They're going to see God move and work in our lives. And through the, the period that we know as the tribulation period, the scripture is clear. Their eyes are going to be turned toward him. Zechariah says, they'll look upon me as one looks upon their only son. And mourn for me as one mourns for their only son. They're going to receive him as their Mashiach Nagid, Messiah the King. They will receive him. That's the work that God's doing. And we see their history painted for us in Leviticus 26. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you so much uh, just for an opportunity to study this incredible book. Lord, I pray, God, that you would continue to give us eyes to see, to recognize the work that you're doing, Father God, that we would learn from the lessons, from the failures, that we would say, wow, Lord, I don't want to run that far 
in the wrong direction, God, before I stop and change my path and say, no, I need to stand with you, Lord. I need to stand with you. I'm not perfect. I make the same mistakes they did. I do the same dumb things. But I have an advantage. In the last days, according to Joel chapter 2, you will pour out your spirit on all men. It was never done before. Your spirit would equip us and enable us to be more than who we are. You said in the Gospel of Luke, if any of us needs more of your spirit, all we have to do is ask and you'll give. You said that they will know that we are your disciples by our love for one another. And you tell us in Romans chapter 5, the love of God is poured out in our lives by the Holy Spirit. God, I believe you want to do a revival. I believe you want to do a new thing. I believe you want to you want to just stir up us. Stir up our community. Stir up our state. Stir up our nation. If my people humble themselves and pray. God, pour out your spirit. For judgment must begin in the house of God. And every revival starts with us turning our hearts toward you. And saying, Lord, forgive me. And help me walk where I need to walk and be who I need to be. So that you can pour out your spirit upon your people, Lord God. And that we can be that light shining in a dark place. In these last days, pour out your spirit. And allow us to affect the world around us. Let us learn from those who have gone before us. For if we do not learn from history, we are doomed to repeat it. So Lord, teach us to have the heart of wisdom. Teach us to turn to you. Equip us, enable us, establish us the power of your Holy Spirit that we might stand in these last days. That we would stand in the gap for our brothers, our sisters. We stand in the gap for our family. That we would stop the needless slaughter of the innocents as mankind runs headlong off a cliff thinking that he's running toward salvation and really He's just going to perish. Father, equip us, your bride, to do your work until you call us home. That we may turn many. God, I know you want to change who we are. I know you want to change our friends and family. I know you want to change our community. I know you want to do an incredible thing. So let us get out of the way and submit ourselves to you and enjoy the blessings that you promise in a life that is devoted unto you. And when we sense the curse, may we repent. 
turn toward you, and we might be saved. Lord, we pray revival. We pray for all these around us affect our world as we place our faith and trust in you alone. For you are able to save from the gutter to the uttermost. So move, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.